All right. Father, thank you again for our time. So we look forward to being in your word, to study it closely. Lord, to acknowledge uh, where we fall short, that we do not in and of ourselves have the wisdom to understand or to apply your word. We can only do it with your help. So we pray, Father, for wisdom, illumination, that we may not only understand your truth and apply it, but also to delight in it, that it would be our greatest joy that the God of heaven and earth has chosen to speak to us. For that, we praise you and commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. In your Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 5, and we'll continue our study in this section. We're really uh, concentrating on what we could call Peter's closing argument, his closing instruction, having worked through the main uh, body of this book over the last year and change, kind of uh, landing our plane. So Peter has a few more things to say to these churches in Asia Minor. And of course, by extension, it's a great message for us today. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5, and we will end in verse 11 to get the context. Hear the word of the Lord. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, we look forward to that. And it's, it's such an exciting time for the church. And I love repeating this over and over again because we have to remind ourselves that as believers in Jesus Christ, as His church, we are to be confident and to anticipate great and wonderful things as the gospel continues to do its work. We have nothing to be anxious about. We should be excited to see the dominion of Christ extend over the whole world through the preaching of His gospel. And it's great to be a part of that and to uh, be called to preach that message. And so we open up the book of First Peter today and see where we are in that sacred endeavor. And I hope that today's passage will be a great encouragement to you. It's a timely reminder for all of us and should be a regular reminder for each of us. The theme of this two-part mini-series is called Three-Dimensional Humility, Three Things About Humility. And we want to see humility and understand it in its scope, and its depth. We want to see the shape of it, how it comes to life in the experience of the church, of Christians. We want it to be, we want humility to be a characteristic that is very strongly recognizable. It is not a characteristic of the Christian that we want to have to look for, kind of push aside all of the weeds. Right, All of the unsanctified parts of life to find. It should be something 
that is immediately recognizable to the profound point that Peter says we are to be clothed with it. And we find it operating three-dimensionally, as Peter describes, in three ways based on this text. So draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 5. The first dimension in which humility is expressed is found in chapter 5, where he says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And then he goes on to give further instructions. But that's the first relationship, right? It's the relationship between the church and its leadership. And we unpack that to, to a significant degree last Lord's Day. But that was the first level of humility that those in the church are to humbly subject themselves to voluntarily and not out of compulsion fall under the leadership of the elders. And we would hope that those elders are godly elders. They are humble leaders who set an example, as Peter describes earlier in chapter 5, that we do so not under compulsion, verse 2, voluntarily, according to, literally, according to God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So the way in which humility is expressed here is really a two-way street. Leaders are also called to be humble, to set an example of humility, to put their needs and interests aside to serve and care for the flock. And as it is on that side of the relationship, so on the other side, younger men, and I would say by extension, the rest of the church, I think younger men specifically, because it is those younger men who will one day be older men, that is elders, and who will be called to set the example of Christian humility and service to the rest of the flock. So he draws their attention specifically. But this is to characterize all of the flock, that as God works in the life of elders, and as we are setting a godly example, and as we are, most importantly, ministering to you by the word of God that you listen to your elders and follow their instruction. So that's the first level. That's the first dimension, if you will. And there's a second one. We kind of got halfway through this, and yet it spills into the third dimension. So listen listen carefully. Look again at verse 5, and he says, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there's that second level, that second dimension, if you will, of humility expressed in the church. And that is humility toward one another. And we went over this in, in some detail last Lord's Day, but keep in mind before we go any further that Peter's language here, as he gives instruction to the church, is one in which he uses very urgent language. It doesn't really turn up in the, in the English. It sounds more like a basic command. Do this. But in the Greek, there is reflected a focus and diligence and urgency in applying all of these things. So if the church is not humble before its leadership and teachable, if it is not humble toward one another, and if it is not, as we will see, humble toward God, the church will be caught flat-footed, not paying attention, and I would say suffer loss for it. We want to be on the ready, as Peter will go on to say. He instructs much concerning being sober, being vigilant, being watchful, not being caught off guard, but being always at attention. And one primary way we are able to stand at attention is to be humble toward one another. And so he says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. See, clothing ourselves with humility is more than just an accessory that we pair with more fashionable attire. It's more than just a layer that we may put on and then take off at our convenience. But no, this is the very clothing we wear. 
This is our very holy raiment that we are constantly wearing. It is to be an ongoing disposition that we wear toward one another. Never exalting ourselves above one another, never competing for one another with supremacy, but together as the Spirit empowers the church to walk with one another in brotherly love and to do the work of the gospel together rather than allowing division to be sown, rather than seeing one another as competition, rather than being envious and jealous of one another's gifts or calling. If we are humble toward one another, we are looking for opportunities to build each other up, to serve one another in our respective ministry capacities. We said it is humility, but as a bulwark against dissension on the inside, especially when there is persecution coming from the outside. Remember, when Peter talks about persecution in this book, it is mostly, if not exclusively, persecution that is coming from the outside. And if that is something that is meant to divide, how much more should the church do what is necessary, clothing ourselves with humility to avoid dissension and division on the inside? And one verse we mentioned from last week, Ephesians 5.21 says, subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ, right? Out of fear of the Lord, be humble toward one another. Be willing to serve one another. One of the greatest examples we find this in, I love this passage, is in John 13, where Jesus, the Lord, the Savior, enjoying this supper with His disciples. And what does He do? He girds Himself with an apron and washes their feet. Though being Lord of heaven and earth, He sets that example of humility. And He even says, I am leaving an example for you to follow. Jesus, the ultimate example of humility and service. So He says, so what's the point for us? What's the point for the church? It is simply this, that we do not follow Jesus' example in a vacuum. We don't just learn about the doctrine of humility. No, humility is something we are to put instantly and consistently to work, that we are to serve one another, look for opportunities, create opportunities more than simply waiting around for them to come along. You see, Christian service in the way and in the example is set by the Lord Jesus is one of the most powerful guards against pride. See, not only does humble service and putting aside our own interests and looking out for the interests of others kill pride, but it also prevents it. See, on one hand, we have to root out the pride that is already within the body, right? But secondly, we also have to put those guards in place to prevent it from gaining a foothold again. And so it is when we stop thinking that life is about what pleases me, what gets me attention, what exalts my place, what gets me ahead, and we start serving one another, we develop a habit of seeing others as better than ourselves and looking out for others' interests. This is one another 101, as seen from the example of Jesus Christ, both in John 13 and also Philippians 2, when he laid aside his glory, his heavenly prerogatives and privileges, took on flesh and became one of us, and then died for us. And Christ, as we know, has been exalted, now is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we live in reference to that humble example that he gave all of us, to serve one another and to build up the body. Now note what Peter says. See, here's, here's where in the text we start to make that transition to the third dimension. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for, so he gives us the reason, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to 
the humble. See, why do we do this ultimately? It's because of God. It's because of what God thinks about pride, and it's because how God responds to humility. God is opposed to the proud. This tells us that pride, even done ignorantly, is not something that is a neutral activity toward God. It is opposed to God. It is defiant. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. Anti-God state of mind. And we can hardly think that God is somehow neutral in his response. No, he is, he is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. So important is this, we are told in Hebrews 10.31, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to be proud or defiant and face his judgment. I mean, it's one thing to be opposed to a man. We go through opposition. We experience opposition our entire life. But to be opposed to God, to find that He is opposed to us, should be a most alarming news indeed. He is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to those who exalt themselves over Him and over their brethren. So this passage is drawn from the Old Testament. I believe this is the last time that Peter draws directly from it. He is quoting uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 34, and it reads thusly. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read what it says in the Old Testament. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the humble. And of course, this is set in a passage which is common in Proverbs, where there are sharp distinctions drawn between the wise and the foolish. See, the language is slightly different when Peter imports it to the New Testament, but the connection is pretty obvious. See, the proud one is by nature a scoffer. He scoffs at God's goodness. He scoffs at God's provision. He scoffs at God's law and righteousness, and he scoffs at all who follow God. He scoffs at all who love God. And so he exalts himself. He believes himself to be strong, autonomous, independent, but he can do without God. But he mocks others in turn who he perceives as weak or as inferior. You think about this attitude finding its place in the church. You see, brothers, this is the very real temptation of pride. Especially when we are going through persecution and any kind of affliction. It is an ever-present temptation for us to see a brother going through it, maybe being under spiritual attack, maybe being persecuted or afflicted in some way, and to think that somehow we have the corner of the market on spiritual maturity. That we excel in humility and holiness. There's a temptation to look down on the one who is being persecuted. To look down on the one or to think of as inferior the one who is going through severe discipline or pain. And to automatically assign to them the the displeasure of God. It's a mistake and often a fatal one that we make in the way we look at one another. And that is not the humble heart of the one who claims Jesus Christ. We are not to mock others that we deem as weak. But rather we are to depend upon God continually and to urge that suffering brother to also depend on God, to cast his cares upon God, as the text will say in verse 7. 
See, what makes this verse in Proverbs so key is that it actually explains the manner in which God opposes the proud. Bruce Waltke has a great quote on this. He he describes that mockers will get from God exactly what they give others. As they tear everything down with their mouths, so the Lord will tear them down with His curse. As they cover others with reproach, so the Lord will cover them with shame. So it is a very urgent warning to the believer within the church to not join in with the unbeliever in casting aspersions upon those in the church who suffer. To somehow think that we are superior and above all forms of temptation. This warning is severe that God opposes the proud. That He is, in a sense, in battle array against those who exalt themselves. We should see pride as one of the most dangerous attitudes to have. A very perilous position before God. This principle is repeated in other words and throughout the New Testament. Consider James 4.6. Its use here is very significant. In this chapter, James is calling out professing Christians for their infighting. He's calling them out. Why are there quarrels among you? Why is there fighting? See, you envy, you, you murder. What is this going on in the, in the midst of those who proclaim themselves to be God's people? He goes so far as to call them adulteresses. A common name that God refers to Israel because of their ongoing spiritual infidelity. That's a strong term to, to use for reproof. But then he goes on and he tells them God is opposed to the proud because they are acting in a proud manner. Their actions demonstrate the truth of the matter. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But James does not leave them without a remedy. He says, therefore submit to God. Humble yourself before God. See, voluntarily come under His provision, His grace, His guidance, His discipline. Because right now, you've been living autonomously. You have not been subjecting yourself to God. What's the proof of that? It is your pride. It is your self-exaltation amongst each other. But submit to God. Draw near to God, he says. And what will happen will be the result. He will draw near to you. But that warning is clear and urgent. Put away this attitude of the adulteress, of this faithlessness toward God. Stop fighting. Stop striving and repent and draw near to God. You know, let the world fight. Let the world quarrel. Let the world kill. But do not let that be named among the people of God. Here's another one. Used in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. It's in this chapter that that Jesus excoriates the Pharisees. He really lays it down, rebukes them for their self-righteous and hypocritical behavior, going as far as to tell His own disciples in the crowd, hey, what they say, do. But do not do what they do, for they say and do not do. Right? They're hypocrites. Don't engage in that kind of self-righteousness. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 23, He who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, there's a great role reversal there. We are not called to exalt ourselves. Only Do not try to exalt what only God can exalt. 
Humble yourself rather, and God will exalt you. If you insist on exalting yourself, then God will humble you. God will bring you low. He will break you. He will let you know that He is the Lord, and it is His prerogative to exalt whom He will. Boy, when you exalt yourself, you are really usurping what only it is God's position to do. One more illustration that I believe is very important, further illustrated in Luke chapter 18. This is where Jesus tells the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Right? What does the Pharisee do? They, go, they both go up to pray. And what does the Pharisee do? The, the, the language reflects that he is actually praying to himself. He's saying this to himself. He's praying to himself. And what is he doing? He is exalting in his own self-righteousness. I thank you, Lord. Oh, it's, that's, that's a good start to a prayer. Thankfulness. But what is he thankful for? I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. That I'm not a sinner like him. And here's all the things I do. You know, I tithe. I'm a holy man. I give. I pray. I fast. It's going down the list. Notice there's nothing in there about what God has done. There's nothing in there about God's grace. No, it's just this disgusting, slobbery, self-exalting speech. Pharisee prays to himself. I believe a, what constitutes a subtle note of his alienation from God. Though he, go, though he draws close, he doesn't pray to God. He prays to himself. However, the tax collector humbles himself by standing far off. says he wouldn't even look toward heaven and he prayed to God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And who's the one justified? Who is the one that God looks upon and declares as righteous? It is the tax collector who humbled himself. And what's Jesus' closing line to this story? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee with his self-righteous attitude exalts himself. Well, that Pharisee, that attitude is going to be smashed into bits. He will find himself crushed. But the humble man, though a tax collector, will be exalted. He will be reckoned righteous because he recognized that he had nothing to claim before God. See, the humble man truly, the truly humble man comes empty-handed and not with all of his claims of spiritual greatness. This is why the call to repentance, the call to humility, is such a serious matter. See, this proud stance against God is one that brings about His wrath. And He will not wink at this sin. And especially not within the New Covenant community. He will not tolerate this among His own people. So this is the example we follow. We follow Christ's humble example, understanding that God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud. Scoffs at the proud, but He gives us grace. You see, as we humble ourselves, and it is God Himself who grants this humble estate, but in so doing we receive grace. We receive all of His provision. Every good and perfect thing as a gift. Nothing that we can claim in and of ourselves, but we claim it based on Christ's finished work. But we learn dependence upon His goodness. Not what we bring to the table, but what Christ brings to the cross, or brings with the cross. 
And to act otherwise is to thumb our nose at a good and holy God and to claim independence, to claim that we are in control. It is time for the church to humble itself and to depend upon God, especially in times such as these, where all this external, all these external threats, man-made calamities, threaten to divide us. It is the time for the church to refresh itself at the fountain of God's grace, to rely on Him. And so here we find that bridge from walking in humility toward one another to walking in humility before God. And there is a strong link here. The one who humbles himself before God knows who he is and knows who God is will humble himself before his brothers and sisters in Christ. See, to be humble, to have God's humility, right? For God to grant humility will extend in the life of the church and pervade our relationships and enable us to work together as the body of Christ and be faithful to our gospel charge. So here we get into verse 6. He says this, Therefore, so in light of the fact that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, here we have this urgency again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. That He may exalt you at the proper time. See, we never want to stop seeing ourselves in light of, of God's holiness of God's strength and our own weakness and inability and, and begin to exalt ourselves before one another, but to continue to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand to understand that we are helpless without Him, that we depend upon Him for everything, that the very humility of Christ in submitting Himself to the Father is our very salvation. And notice what it says here. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, very important to note here, starting in verse 6 and going through verse 7, let us not fail to pay attention to who he is addressing here. Right? This keeps us from once again falling into the error of making Christianity, the Christian life, some isolated individual quest. Notice Peter's use of the plural. Humble, humble yourselves. This is the call to the church to corporately, as a body, humble ourselves and be dependent upon Him under the hand of God. The mighty hand of God. See, the hand of God is common usage in the Old Testament. It refers to God's power, His sovereign power over the direction, the trajectory of human affairs. You know, we use the term often, well, I have my hand in too many bowls right now. We use that as a a way to describe our involvement in things, the responsibilities that we have. So the Old Testament uses this often to describe God's sovereign involvement in history. Uses it in a variety of ways. Listen to 1 Samuel 5.11. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. See, in Hebrew, the same word is used for hand or power. And so in this context, the Philistines, if you remember this story, had taken the ark from Israel. See, Israel, I believe in this, 
and this story used it in battle as sort of a talisman. They used it superstitiously and were not actually uh, relying on God's power. They were not humbling himself before him. So the Philistines took it, and yet when they took it, God struck them with plagues, with tumors. Very uncomfortable. Their suffering was great. And they said, get this out of here. The hand of God in terms of afflicting his enemies was very heavy. So listen to Second Chronicles 30 verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So you notice there's already a, a variety of things here in which the hand of God alludes to. His judgment, his, his affliction upon his enemies, but also to make provision to obey his word. So I would hope that the hand of God is heavy upon us to obey him to keep His commandments and to love Him. In Ecclesiastes 9.1, we read this, For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. So even man's destiny is in the hands of God. It depends upon His sovereign authority, His guiding of their lives. And even in affliction, I believe this is from Job, pity me, pity me, oh you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. So even the hand of God in the sense of providential affliction, hard affliction, he is not judging Job. You could say, but he's working in his life, he is purifying him. He is drawing Job to himself. But Job himself says, the hand of God has struck me. So what does that little sampling tell us? That the hand of God is everywhere. There is no escape from God's authority. See, that you can't escape the hand of God. That's the point. What matters here is how we respond to the knowledge that God's hand is over everything. And so what's our response? It's humility. Once again, Peter uses this urgent language. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Do not exalt yourself but humble yourselves as the church, as His chosen people under His mighty hand. And I think it's obvious that in the context of affliction to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, this refers to us voluntarily coming under His sovereign care and authority and trusting Him that He may exalt us at the proper time. See, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we accept that suffering and affliction is part of God's providential plan for us. It is His sovereign working in us that we may rest humbly and to know Him and to trust that He will get us through it, that He will preserve our faith, that He will preserve our soul, and that He will preserve His flock. Additionally, that He will put our enemies to shame, knowing that God defends His people. This is something we have to keep in mind is that suffering is not God tormenting us. We have to remind ourselves of that. We may fall into the mistaken notion that God is. Again, He's, he's, he's playing with us, right? He's being capricious. He's being wishy-washy. He's being mean to us. Remember something very important. We are under God's hand. We are not under His thumb. He is not making sport of us. We have to say this again and again as suffering mounts, whether we experience it personally or corporately, we have to remember that we are still under God's care, but He is not 
forsaken his people. And so as we do this, what is the result? What is the result? That he will exalt you at the proper time. That is huge. That is an enormous implication when it comes to humbling ourselves. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God understands that we are humbling ourselves under his timing as well. I think we alluded to the microwave. We had this sort of microwave understanding of sanctification. That when we go through suffering that brings sanctification, that it must happen very quickly. Right? It starts and then perhaps the next day it stops. But it is a slow cooker. When we suffer affliction, it is often prolonged an extended amount, uh, extended period of time. That perseverance under God's mighty hand is hard. It is gritty. It is a battle. Because even in, in all this time, we continue to do battle against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, right? The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are continually locked in that battle. Sometimes we really want that exaltation right now. We want it on our time. But our time isn't always proper, right? Our proper time is now. And so one of the ways in which we trust God, or one of the ways in which we humble ourselves before God, is to trust in His timing. When we are exalted, when we are ready for God to lift us up, to see His goodness demonstrated to us, which is abiding, we know. And I think first and foremost, the kind of exaltation that Peter has in view is of a final and eternal kind. And I want to add here that there often we will go through the Christian life, we will fight particular battles, and we will find ourselves even through that situation in a, in a temporary form of exaltation. That God will vindicate us, he will, he will lift us up, right? He will honor us, he will give an open and public display of his divine favor and provision toward us. We have to remember also that even in a way that we are already exalted with Christ, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 2, 6 says. So in a very real sense, we're already exalted with Him. But as in the intermittent time, we will experience that. But it is when Christ returns when we will see that exaltation in its fullness, when we are glorified with Him and God unleashes His final judgment upon His enemies. Listen to what... Edmund Hebert concludes, Peter's readers were to submit to God's dealing with them as part of his program of discipline, purification, and training of his family members. Such an attitude fosters the calming and inspiring assurance that no enemy on earth will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even though you suffer, you are under the mighty hand of God. And if you are under the mighty hand of God, humbled, that is exactly where you ought to be. And let me tell you, God is so faithful, He will afflict you in whatever way necessary to ensure that you humble yourself before Him. That you are dependent on Him. That is how faithful He is. Though in, though in the flesh we may resist, God will humble us. But, in, but to humble us is to put us in that place of honor, of great honor. We used to sing this song as kids in you know, the old school days of, of children's church. And it went like this. In His time, in His time, He makes all things beautiful 
in his time. And I think, man, how naive we were back then singing that. We didn't know what that entailed. We didn't know the kind of suffering we endured to see that come to fruition. And yet in the thick of it, we finally see it. That though we suffer, God is making all things beautiful. He is making all things new. Remember, he is currently destroying the old system as the gospel is preached, as Christ is proclaimed as Lord and Savior. So even though suffering is ugly and painful, it is refining us to be more like Christ. That is the sacred mission of God shown toward His people. He conforms us to the image of His Son. He is doing it in His time. Remember, remember the words of Gandalf the Grey. A wizard is neither late, nor is he early. He arrives exactly when he intends to. So it is with God. He does everything exactly how and when he intends to. We can never accuse him of being, of mistiming something, of being off schedule. He's not late nor early. He makes all things beautiful and perfect in his time. Proof of that, we were told in scripture, but just at the right time, Christ died for us. That when Christ made that ultimate sacrifice to call his sheep to himself, it was the most perfect time in human history for him to offer himself as that atoning sacrifice for sinners. It was that perfect time that he would be put in the ground and then rise triumphantly having conquered death and sin to the glory of his Father and for the good and salvation for his people. So just as he did that, so is there a perfectly appointed season for our eventual exaltation. But part of humbling ourselves under his care is understanding, and I would say even rejoicing over the fact that God is working according to his timetable and not ours. And as we see him doing that, we have greater confidence in his sovereign plan as well as an immense comfort as we endure this season of suffering. So we go to verse 7. Let's get through this. He says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, now note the link here. This word casting is linked to this command to humble yourself, yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is the how, right? How do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? We do so by casting all our cares on Him. So bringing our anxieties to God is the humble act itself. I think that's very clear instruction. Because to not cast all our anxiety on Him is a form of pride. It is in a sense to say that God does not have the resources or even a greater statement, love for me, to provide for me what I need in the midst of affliction. But that is how Peter describes that. That is the humbling act. So what do we do? We turn to God and cast all our anxiety on Him. Now once again, I would emphasize that the your here in verse 7 and the you is plural. So let's not individualize this text too much. Yes, it has individual truth, but the text says your, you, the church, the body of Christ. Imagine what would become of the church if this is something that we obeyed, but the church corporately was together and casted all our anxieties on God. Everything that troubled us, right? 
everything that afflicted us. We cried out to God as His people and casted everything on Him. This word anxiety is, uh, is an interesting one. It carries with it a connotation of being divided, being cut, or being split. And you notice that when you are anxious, what are you? Your, your attention is divided. A- anxiety is one of those things that afflicts not only our, our soul, it afflicts our mind. We're, we're divided mentally. It's hard to concentrate on anything when we are anxious about something. That is, I believe that is why one of the reasons that Paul himself tells us, be anxious for nothing. And it's, and it's hard to sit here and say that there is some kind of magic bullet for anxiety because I know that there are some of us in here who really struggle with anxiety. We struggle with being anxious. We struggle with trusting God. And then that compounds by the fact that some of us also struggle with great depression. But what does Scripture tell us? See, here's where it comes down to. Are, do we trust God's Word on this or do we not? It's, it's a hard thing to say. But do we trust God in what He says or not? So when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, he is not offering us a helpful suggestion. He is making a command. Be anxious for nothing. And then what does he go on to say? With everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And I really believe that one of the reasons we continue to be anxious and see that anxiety compound over time is because we do not think about the second part of that instruction. Are we making our prayers known to God? Are we coming to Him? Are we supplicating Him? Are we pleading with Him? And are we coming with thankful hearts acknowledging that He is a good God who will meet our every need even when we are anxious? You know, I remember making the same challenge many months ago when it came to joy. Have we ever, have we ever humbled ourselves and said, Lord, I am joyless. I am, I am struggling so deeply with a melancholy spirit to the point of despair. Please make me joyful. Give me joy. Will the Lord fail to come through to make you satisfied in Him so that even though you may still feel that melancholy, so even though you still may struggle with depression to some degree, that it and joy are not mutually exclusive. You have that joy. You know that you are called to be satisfied in Christ above all things so that you are able to persevere. So you are able to depend on Him to provide your every need. But that is expressed first and foremost by what Peter says here. Casting all your anxiety on Him for He cares for you. We bring our anxieties to God with a humble heart. This image of casting is like throwing, is taking a blanket and throwing, throwing it over someone and doing so forcefully. And it does say all your anxiety. See, it's not even holding back. It's not being too proud. It's not being proud and saying, well, Lord, you can handle this, but I will handle this. I need to work out my own problems. Well, guess what? When Christ died for you, He made your problems His own. And He will not fail to help you. So cast all your anxieties on Him. This is one of the great unique qualities of Christianity. That God in Christ cares about us. That He pays attention to us. Christianity is unique 
and what it presents of a God so powerful and yet simultaneously so personal, right? That God is involved in our lives. But let's see how He cares for us. I want us to think upon these things. How does God care for us? Let's explore this just a bit in our remaining time. It says that because He cares for you, right? That is our impetus. Knowing that God, as holy, as near, as devoted to His people, cares for us. Cares for what afflicts us. So here's the first thing. Know that God cares for you completely. Know that God cares for you completely. In this. That the work He began, He will not stop. See, this is what we call care in the big picture. We learn this from Romans 8. Where Paul writes, if God did not spare His own Son, right? If God did not withhold His own Son, how then will He fail to freely give you all things? Now think of the word picture here. Casting a blanket. If God can take all of the sins of the elect and put them on Christ, how then would He fail to take something like our anxieties? It almost seems, from a human perspective, that, that, that's easy. If Christ could take my sin and suffer the justice of God for them, how much more can He then take, take my anxieties, take those things that, that afflict me, take those things that afflict us as a church, those things that are catalysts for division and infighting and strife. So Jesus has taken all, your, all of our sins upon Himself how then could He not handle our anxieties? So He cares for us completely. He also cares for us providentially. That through every situation, He even uses trials of life to draw us to Himself. And that as our Good Shepherd, no matter where we seek pasture, whether that be the valley of the shadow of death or by still and clear waters, He supplies our every need. So even in situations, this is the amazing thing about the provision of our Good Shepherd, is that even in the most backwards and upside-down situations where we think that the world and Satan and death and hell itself is arrayed against us, God provides. God provides. He cares for us closely. That is to say that God cares in such a way that He is not passive and disinterested in our plight. It is said that he, the Scripture says He is near to the brokenhearted. See, how can we take this knowledge and yet despair? How can we take this knowledge and fail to cast our anxieties upon Him? It is in Luke 12.7 where the Lord Jesus says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He provides for, provides for even the birds of the air. He provides for us as well. He even says, boy, how by worrying can you add one cubit to your stature? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Worry about today. Cast your cares upon God today. Have your needs met from Him today. Here's the other thing. He cares for you supremely. That isn't to say that He cares more about you than anything else. It's that he cares for you more than anybody else cares for you. That in Him we find ultimate solace, ultimate provision. So it is a mystery. It should be thought of as a profound mystery to the church that we continue to seek for solace in the things of this world. 
that we look to human wisdom to try to right ourselves, to try to find peace and security. Peace and security from a world, from the old creation that is right now crumbling before our very eyes. Why seek comfort and provision from that? Here's another one. He cares for us faithfully. We can cast our anxieties upon God because we have a good shepherd that will not abandon his sheep. He will not abandon us to temptation. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we are able. Right? He will give us a way of escape. He may give us more than we can handle, but the good news is, is that He will not give us more than He can handle. We can bank our souls on that. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Big passage, but it's worthy of our attention. It says some of the things we've been alluding to already, but we can't miss it. Matthew 6, 25-33. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, that is those who do not believe, Eagerly seek all of these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Note on verse 33 there, that end verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That command is still in force today. We are, as God's people, to seek first his kingdom. That is, in, that is our business, right? To see the, the kingdom of God, the dominion of Jesus Christ expand to the preaching of the gospel. That is our fundamental priority. That is the output, the outgrowth of a humble disposition under God's mighty hand. Because even it is under His mighty hand and His provision that we preach the gospel. And all these things will be added to you. Let me tell you, there's nothing new under the sun, friends. It is always going to be some new crisis, right? Some new life-altering, life-threatening circumstance that will be broadcast on the hilltops and on the rooftops that we're supposed to be anxious about, right? What I think is unique is I would say it's rare in human history to see the force with which basically the state has tried to usurp the role of God in this world. More than, than any other time in history, it's hard to account for it, where the state has said, Look to me, peoples of the earth, and be saved. And so it's going to give a crisis so that we look to the state, we look to human governments and human wisdom and provision for what we need. They're saying, humble yourself under my hand, but you'll find yourself under its thumb. There will never, listen to me, there will never be a shortage of that as long as we are here. There will never be a shortage of things that make us anxious. So even those things, cast them upon the Lord Jesus and submit yourself humbly to His care.
Because all these human crises draw our attention away from the fundamental human problem that should cause us the most anxiety. That is sin and alienation from God and the eternal penalty that comes with it. That's where we come in as the church to faithfully proclaim salvation through Christ by faith or by grace and through faith and nothing else. To declare a good God who demonstrates grace and mercy to those who humble themselves before Him. Make that your habit. See, casting all of our cares upon Christ is not some sort of moral cop-out. You can't think of it as an action of casting ourselves upon God because we're too weak to handle it ourselves. Trust me, we are too weak to handle it ourselves. But we have a caring God who lifts us up, who sustains us with His mighty hand. Think of this. Think of this very clearly, and then we'll close. But people throughout history, ourselves included, have always been casting things upon God, right? You're always going to, you're going to be in one category, right? What are you casting? You're either going to be casting insults, casting your rebellion, casting your accusations, casting lies, casting aspersions against God's holy character and presence. See, we've been throwing things around our whole life. We have. We're always throwing things around. And it is the gospel that gives us that comfort to say, cast your cares upon Him. Put those things aside and come to the One who will take your sin upon Himself and give you life eternal and also call you to cast all your anxieties on Him. The One who overcomes all of those things and demonstrates His love and care for you. So that's it, guys. You've got to stop hurling unbelief, especially in the midst of great affliction. But to hurl all of your troubles, to cast all your troubles upon Him, knowing that He cares for you and that He, as God, as Shepherd, as our Lord and Savior, will always be faithful. So rather than accusing Him of faithlessness, it is time for the church to prevail upon His faithfulness. Rest assured, this is humility. Rest assured that we can come to God in prayer, in humble submission, and bring all that troubles us to Him because He cares for us. Let the church believe that, that we serve a God who knows us and who loves us and who will get us through the troubles that life brings, especially from those who persecute us. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for your love and kindness to us. Uh, give us the strength, Lord. Give us the endurance we need to continue placing ourselves under your mighty sovereign hand, knowing you care for us, knowing that we don't have to be anxious about anything, knowing that uh, whatever troubles us, Lord, we can bring to you. And as even we sing, prepare to sing that song, Lord, that we have a friend in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Let this be real for us, Lord, that we would not sit and talk about these things, to sit around talking about what, what ails us unless we are fervent and purposeful and bringing it to You in prayer. Lord, we ask You that You would increase our faith, that You would reinvigorate our, our melancholy hearts that we would see this as a call to trust You. Not simply as an option that's continually open, but, a, but an urgent command to take 
our anxieties to you. And as a church, Father, not merely as individuals, but to see this as a, a corporate necessity that as your people, especially on the Lord's Day, that we can come before you and, and call out to you, Lord, to prevail upon your faithfulness, to not be as Israel was in the desert, to, to cast accusations against you and to declare that you have forsaken us, but rather to declare that you did not take us out of bondage to sin and death to let us die in the wilderness, but that you will faithfully lead us to the promised land where you will be our God and we will be your people. So Lord, there are a number of things this morning that do trouble us, things we may not even be aware of, but we can even now as your people bring them to you and cry out to you and say, Lord, bring us comfort, bring us reassurance of your promises, help us to anchor our hope in you. That with thanksgiving. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.